You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The nonprofit Viola Alliance filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Navy in federal district court this morning. The lawsuit seeks to ensure the shutdown of the Navy's 144-acre Red Hill Fuel Underground Storage Facility and is calling for civil penalties for past violations. The group formed shortly after fuel from Red Hill was found to have leaked into the drinking water of several Oahu communities in November of 2021. The lead plaintiffs in the suit include several well-known community organizers and activists, including former OHA, former OHA trustee Clarence Ching, former Board of Education member Kim Koko Iwamoto, and peace activist and Army veteran Pete Doctor. Uh, the conversation's Russell Subiono sat down with Doctor to talk about why they felt the, ne- the lawsuit is needed. Can you remind listeners what Waiola Alliance hopes to accomplish with this lawsuit? Ultimately, Waiola Alliance hopes to expedite this closure process and to hold the military accountable financially and otherwise. And among our goals, too, is to find out what we don't know, you know, through discovery in the court process, because based on our experience, we know that the military has not been disclosing information and fact that there's an environment where we find out information through whistleblowers indicates the environment there to be forthright with the public. So we want to clean up as soon as possible, of course, very safely. And we're also concerned about the ongoing and future impacts of the damage already done. The Red Hill facility has already been ordered to permanently close and halt operations. Why file a lawsuit? Oversight is needed. And that is one of the goals of this lawsuit. However, again, based on our experience, in my experience in the military, it's the continual foot dragging. So this is to counter that protocol the military seems to practice in these kind of situations. So we want to expedite that safely. Speaking of your military experience, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you specifically with your knowledge of military process and experience in the Army, what do you anticipate the military's response or the Navy's response will be to the lawsuit? Do you feel like it will have an impact on the time frame for the process? Well, we've seen the response from the military already. We don't have to speculate, particularly the Navy. It'd be one thing if this was the first leak, you know, but this has been ongoing for decades. So we already know that And this is where I guess the military background comes in is the national security trump card. You know, when they will make the argument that it's critical for national security as they have for decades. Right. And then all of a sudden 180 about face and say, oh, okay, we can shut it down. So it's that trump card the military holds the national security that I am very sensitive to the way the public will buckle to that argument quickly, particularly political leaders. You know, the military is not just an institution, but it's a, you know, it's a culture and, and whatnot. And so the military sometimes has the spell over the public, you know, about fears of national security. When we are facing a security threat right now, our water, you know, it right. can't be more real. We've heard that before when talking to the military about Pohakulua. There's a strong emphasis on the reason they need so much acreage there is because of national security. And going back to what you said about water being security, you've been quoted as saying it's unacceptable that the military is our biggest security threat given clean water is security and true health. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, think about it. When we talk about enemies of the state threats to our Ohana, like if someone was going to threaten my child through an act of terrorism, that's clearly seen as, you know, an act of war. So why is it different when our own military is doing it to our own kids? You know, you could call it friendly fire, but there's nothing friendly about poisoning your kids. You know, so I don't think there's anything abstract or, you know, speculative about it. We can see what's happening now. I met some of the family members that were impacted and it was just horrifying. And all I did was just validate the fears I've had since 2014 when that leak took place. And that was around the time of Flint, Michigan. And I, at that time I had a two-year-old daughter and I just was frightened with the impacts it could have on our neurological development because we were using water all the time, we were water drinkers. And talking to some of those mothers and seeing pictures of their, their keiki 
just confirm all the concerns that this is a threat to our families and our ability to live and survive here. That's about the foundation of security, right? The lawsuit that Wyola has filed also seeks civil penalties for past mm-hmm. violations of the Clean Water Act by the Navy. Do you have an idea of what those penalties potentially could be? Well, there is more we don't know than we know. For example, the plumes. We don't know exactly how many plumes there are. And we're finding out about the discharge process now as they try to clean out the tanks. But the fact is the military's own studies predict future releases, you know, with a potential of like another 30,000 gallon leak, there's right potential for these financial penalties. So if there are fines assessed, where does that money go? The fines will, well, we have our legal costs, of course, that the military will be obligated to cover. But we hope that those fines will be for restoration. Is there a chance that some of that could potentially help some of the the people who have been impacted by fuel being in the water? I'll be honest, Russell, I'm not sure about that. One of the things we're concerned is, is that they are drawing up the next defense budget. And will there be enough to cover all the costs, including the remediation and damages? What I guess what I'm interested in, and I think what maybe what a lot of our listeners are interested in is, how long do you think it will actually take for the Navy to refuel and permanently close Red Hill? Anything beyond this year is unacceptable. Yeah. You know, we know that they're going to push to take as much time as possible for what ever reasons. And it's hard not to wonder if part of the foot dragging is to wait for the next national security breach, you know, alert to become the issue of the day to undermine the closure again. However, given, you know, the urgency of people are sick now, there should be no further delay and then shouldn't uh, take beyond this year to defuel those. The sooner the better. But Safely, of course. Do you, do you think that's do you think that's realistic though? Do you think that they will be able to get it done by the end of the year, or, or should we expect to wait a little bit longer? You know, given the will the military has to project power, yeah. it certainly has the potential and the financial, you know, backing to make this possible if it was a priority. You know, if our health and security here back on the Sina was top priority, then that's where all the energy would shift you. And, and like you said, water is our security and it ultimately affects everybody in the state. So thank you so much for your time, Pete. I really appreciate you talking to me. Is there anything else you just wanted to share or anything you wanted to underscore just real quick, anything you wanted to leave the listeners with? Uh, I, I think as, you know, my, as my quote said, you know, uh, water is our security and it's also our true wealth. You know, I think there's a reason that Wines had it right when they noted wealth is vi-vi. You know, water is one of the foundations of our economy, our political stability, and importantly, our culture is all founded on the the availability of clean water. So it really is a foundation that of our society that the military is really wrecking havoc with. I don't want to be uh, collateral damage from military's family fire. That was Army veteran Pete Doctor, one of the plaintiffs in the lawsuit why Ola Alliance filed against the Navy today over its Red Hill fuel storage facility. He was talking to HBR's Russell Sabiano. Yes, we sing. Ola Ikovai, Ola Ikovai, water is life, water is life. Ola Ikovai, Ola Ikovai, water is life. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. We have an interview about a new piano competition taking place on Oahu coming up later in the show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking into some local lore about an instrument 
residing in our own Atherton studio. The Atherton Performing Arts Studio was funded by Alexander Simpson Atherton, known to many as Pug. The studio space has been used for everything from political debates to intimate concerts. Anyone who's visited the Atherton can't help but notice the sleek black piano, which has a history all on its own. As the story goes, Mr. Atherton wasn't satisfied with just the performance studio. He thought it needed a proper piano to stand up to the space. The mission took him halfway around the globe to Germany, where he decided on Bosendorfer. The specific model that was ordered for the Atherton has a unique feature that you won't find on the average piano. Can you tell us what it is? We'll get you the answer later in the show. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweedHawaii.com. Those free COVID PCR tests are turning out to be a windfall for laboratories, so says University of Hawaii Health economist Timothy Halliday. He looked at data from the state tax office. He found that while the actual cost of the tests may be somewhere between $20 and $30, labs were getting reimbursed at a higher rate. All perfectly legal, Halliday says, but some wonder why the cost can't be curbed. So we took general excise tax data from Hawaii Department of Taxation. And the thing, the interesting thing with Hawaii is that they um, collect a monthly sales tax on medical care, which is actually somewhat unique in the United States. So we were able to track month-to-month revenue of private testing facilities, of which we had about 21 in the state. And what we showed is that the revenues that they were paying excise tax on um, we're tracking the volume of PCR tests on a month-to-month basis. So that as the volume of PCR tests increased, the revenues increased, and when the volume of PCR tests declined, the revenues also declined. Um, we were able to show that there was, on average, 8% monthly growth rate in revenue, so month-to-month, during the very beginning of the pandemic. So it's 8%, so that's a fairly large increase in revenue on a month-to-month basis. And we provide a incredibly conservative estimate of per test profit of about $10, but we suspect that the actual profits per test is substantially greater than that. And so we're talking just private labs like what, diagnostic labs, clinical labs, those kinds of companies? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And it turns out there's about 21 in the state. So while people might think, oh, yeah, these tests are free, there is a cost. The tests are not free. I mean, free testing is a misnomer. The way it works is that it's free to the patient, okay, because the federal government basically said there will be no cost sharing for for, for testing, for COVID testing. That was actually part of the federal legislation that was passed when the pandemic first started. But the providers who are giving you the tests are um, collecting money from a number of sources. So one would be the federal government via Medicare. Another would be the state government via Medicaid, okay? Um, And then another source would be private insurance companies. So this would be HMSA and Kaiser. And then also because Hawaii has a very, um, has a lot of um, out-of-state people because of the tourism, they also collect money from out-of-state insurance companies. Is there any loophole to close? There's a few things that could be done to lower the amount of profits that are going to their testing facilities. I think one of the most straightforward things would be to drop the reimbursement rates from uh, the state Medicaid office or from federal Medicare. So currently Medicare is reimbursing about $50 per test. It turns out the state Medicaid office, if you 
uses CPT code of 87635 is paying about $100 per test, which is actually double what the feds are paying. So if they were to drop this, that would, I mean, that would have a direct impact. But the other thing is the administratively set prices from government-sponsored insurance are basically used as benchmarks for negotiating with private insurance companies. So this would basically give place downward pressure on prices charged by private insurance companies. So what got you started on this? I'm a health economist, so I'm, I'm interested in, generally speaking, the cost of health care in the U.S. because we spend more money as a percentage of GDP than any other rich country in the world. We spend about 20% of our GDP on medical care, and no other country in, in the world comes close to that. So I looked at what was going on with the testing, and I thought it was a potential source of waste. I mean, I think we could have the volume of testing that we've had in the U.S. quite easily at a much lower cost. So I think there was a lot of providers who were collecting rents, is what we call them, from the pandemic. So they were basically profiting as a consequence of the pandemic. So COVID came with a windfall. Yes, that's one way of putting it, yes. And so, you know, your scope was pretty narrow. Are you looking at other data? We absolutely will. This is just the start. So, I mean, there's a few things that I would just want to look at as a matter of description because we just there's a lot we just don't understand. So, I mean, it would be useful to just get claims data, for example, from HMSA and look at descriptive information on how much money these private insurers are paying for a test. Because there's actually a, a fairly wide variation in prices for medical consumption, which is completely bizarre. So, I mean, it, it, think of it this way. If you walk into a Starbucks and you buy like a grande coffee, there's one price. But with say a PCR test or like a colonoscopy, there's about 20 prices. Maybe not 20, but there's a lot of prices. You know, you call this a homogeneous good and it's selling for a multitude of prices. And this can only happen in a highly concentrated market where the providers and the insurance companies have market power, right? So that's one thing that we wanted to get at. So what is the you know, degree of price dispersion and the PCR test prices? What, what are those prices on average? Because we still don't really have a firm handle on that. And then from there, um, we can try and get more information on what the actual profits are. So who needs to be looking at this, the FDA? Good question. Part of the problem is that it's completely legal. We write the rules you know, through federal legislation and whatnot, and we basically allow this kind of behavior to happen. So the only way you can prevent the behavior from happening in the future is to change the rules. Well, but it's just uh, not very smart. I mean, it's just money going out the door that doesn't have to. Yes, I agree. So the FDA just basically says whether or not a procedure or a drug is safe. They're not really so much concerned about the price of uh, the um, the price of the procedure, for example. I think it might be worthwhile for like the state attorney general to like look into it just to see what happened and then to figure out what kind of a regulatory framework could prevent it from happening in the future. That's one way we can go about it. You can also think about the market structure of providers. One idea that we had was that the market concentration in Hawaii's insurance market might have made this easier because it's easy for HMSA to raise premiums due to being a dominant player in the state, right? They have 60% of market share. And then the other player in the state is Kaiser, and people can't easily switch between the two insurers because Kaiser is a closed shop. So you can't go to Kaiser without changing your positions, right, or vice versa. So that's another thing that they can think about. Another thing we can think about, at least in the state, is how much money is the state's Medicaid office actually paying for a PCR test, okay? And if they're paying for the most part $100, which is what we think it is, they might think about dropping that because that's well above cost, we're quite confident. So I think we could, at least locally, we could think about the state AG, we could think about various consumer protection agencies in the state government, maybe one way. I think it might be worthwhile thinking about why MedQuest is paying such high prices if they are in fact as high as $100 per test. The thing is that we can't control what HMSA pays, we can't control what Kaiser pays, but you can have indirect influence on what they're paying through the federally administered prices. It's sort of the way that the Federal Reserve controls interest rates. I mean, they don't, they don't control every interest rate, but they do control the federal funds rate, which ripples through the system. It's a similar thing. That was UH Professor Timothy Halliday. He's a health economist and recently looked at the costs of PCR tests that are being paid for by the government.
Governor David Ige spoke with us this morning about a number of issues, including the COVID testing costs, as well as the filing of the lawsuit against the Navy over the Red Hill defueling process. Ige said he just spoke with the Navy secretary the day before yesterday and was assured the defueling will happen as quickly and safely as possible to avoid any more contamination of our drinking water. The military did drop their lawsuit contesting the state's order. We issued a revised order a couple weeks ago that required defueling and then decommissioning of the tank. So I'm not quite certain what the nature of this lawsuit is. You know, we are focused on um, reviewing the independent assessment. We, we received it a, a couple of weeks ago. It's a very thorough assessment of the situation. They've identified um, a number of things that they believe uh, need to be corrections and corrected um, investment in valves and pipelines and things like that. They have identified increased training that they believe needs to happen in order to defuel safely. So, you know, we continue to work with the Navy. We're going through the independent assessment. It uh, is, uh, appears very comprehensive and thorough. Um, and then we'll be working with the Navy to implement the proposed improvements as quickly as we can and then begin defueling uh, when it's safe to do so. Do you feel confident that uh, the military is you know, going to do it right <laughs> this time? Yes, certainly. I, you know, I did have a chance to uh, speak with Secretary of the Navy, Carlos Del Toro, uh, on Sunday, and he is uh, committed to defueling and decommissioning the tanks. And I think we all agree that the priority is to ensure that uh, we can do it safely. And, you know, the specific actions that have been proposed, uh, we, we're reviewing at this point in time. And, and we look forward to working with the Navy to safely defuel the tanks and then decommission it. So uh, there has been a definite change in the way the Navy is viewing the Red Hill facility. They used to view it as an important uh, strategic asset. They recognize in uh, today's uh, conditions um, having a single centralized strategic storage really doesn't make any sense anymore. So in my discussions, they are clearly focused on defueling the tanks and then decommissioning the tanks. In your conversations uh, with Carlos de Toro, did the issue of uh, conservation come up? I mean, we do talk about uh, conservation. You know, we did discuss the new dry dock at Pearl Harbor. As part of that, they are making significant efforts to conservation in Pearl Harbor. And so they definitely are aware. They um, know that Hawaii has been at the forefront to the clean energy transformation. Uh, and we do have a couple of partnerships with them uh, to really accelerate the greening of uh, the infrastructure at Pearl Harbor and other Navy facilities. You know, we did talk with Par Hawaii, and they said they did get a contract with the Navy, you know, as far as the holding tanks for any fuel needs that the military has at this point, you know, without being able to access Red Hill. Do you feel assured that enough is being done to make sure that operations aren't going to be impeded? Yeah, certainly. You know, the uh, Red Hill facility was the entire Pacific strategic storage. And, you know, Navy is looking at other storage facilities, both private as well as government-owned. And as you know, the part Hawaii facility is something that we can use to store fuel as well. So, I mean, I think uh, the Navy and part of the next phase is to really identify all of those uh, areas that can serve as a fuel storage and then begin the process of uh, defueling and then using and distributing the fuel that is currently at Red Hill until it's completely defueled and then decommissioned. In the news today, there's a you know concern about the costs of uh, COVID PCR tests, that there isn't just one price that uh, labs are being uh, reimbursed at. 
Is there anything that your administration can do to look into this? Well, you know, for a long period of time, the federal government just paid for the cost of testing and the cost of vaccinations. So in our more recent discussions with the White House, they have made it clear, at least for the last two months now, that the Congress hasn't appropriated additional funds and they will be running out of funds and will no longer be able to pay for testing and vaccinations. So we do know that that transition is happening once they run out of the appropriated um, federal funds, then we will be going back to the normal way that we pay for healthcare services. So, you know, insurance uh, will have to determine the things that will be covered and, you know, the whole process of negotiating of rates at which labs and other facilities will be reimbursed for doing testing and, and vaccinations will have to be uh, negotiated and carried through. Uh, so that is a concern of all the governors. Um, you know, we, we know that testing has been an important part of our, our strategy to fight against COVID. We appreciate the low-cost at-home tests that have been made available. And I think uh, more and more of our community is feeling comfortable about testing themselves at home and being able to determine whether they are infected with the virus. I mean, I think that um, things are evolving and we're getting back to how to live with COVID. And so the cost of testing, you know, the cost of treatment will become uh, transitioning back to the normal healthcare processes, you know, between now and the end of the year. Governor, you know, I was just over uh, on the Big Island at the Kona Airport, and I know, you know, there have been discussions that you've had with Japan about uh, opening the gate and, and, and the, mm-hmm. the re- you know, seeing the return of, of the tourists there. Anything you can share with us about that? You know, in fact, I just uh, met with the Council General um, of Japan uh, here uh, last week, and we kind of went over the actions that Japan is taking to begin to return more visitors to the islands. They did, as of June 1st, increase the number of uh, travelers into Japan by 100%. So they went from 10,000 visitors per day to 20,000 visitors. I mean, it's still very, very limited, but it's it's an increase, and they anticipate increasing that uh, every month uh, throughout the summer. We have uh, seen commitments from uh, Japan Airlines and ANA for increased services uh, to Hawaii. They'll be um, increasing the number of flights. Right now, leisure travel continues to be restricted to package and group tours. And also for those uh, residents in Hawaii who is interested in in traveling uh, to Japan, they certainly should be talking with uh, JTB and some of the other travel partners because those 20,000 traveling seats will be distributed through the uh, tour companies and the, the travel agents in Japan they'll be getting the authorization for people to travel. One encouraging sign is that Japan has dropped the post-arrival test requirement. You know, when I went to Japan, I was required to take a PCR test uh, at the airport upon arrival. I also was required to uh, take a PCR test before departure here. But then we had to remain in uh, Haneda Airport for about two hours until the sample could be processed and I was confirmed as a negative and then we were uh, allowed to leave the airport. Japan is dropping that post-arrival test requirement. I think it's um, beginning June 14th, so that would make it a whole lot easier for people to travel to Japan. Uh, and then, as as you had mentioned, I did discuss with both the Prime Minister and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs about restarting international flights between Haneda and Narita and Kona. Uh, And you may have seen the announcement, um, Japan Airlines has announced that they will uh, restart service between Haneda and Kona, um, direct international flight, 
beginning August 1st. So uh, the Japanese is very methodical. You know, they are going to be managing、uh, travel between Hawaii and Japan. And so they、um, have committed that they will slowly be increasing the number of travelers that they allow.、Uh, and it was reaffirming、uh, in meeting with all of the travel partners, the hotels, and the travel agents that Hawaii is number one、uh, all across the country. You know, they have been、uh, isolated and unable to travel just like us here、uh, in Hawaii. And their first choice priority destination、uh, is Hawaii. You know, we did hear from the tour companies that there still is a reluctance to travel in general. You know, I think all of us are evaluating、uh, travel during this COVID time. And so we do know we have our work cut out for us in terms of. Managing the virus activity here in the state of Hawaii and then working with our travel partners to reassure、uh, the Japanese visitors that Hawaii is a healthy and safe place to travel to. Well, I think the Big Island has the best positivity rates at this point, the lowest of、yes. the other counties, so that's a good thing. Yes, I've been talking with Mayor Roth. He's definitely、uh, very encouraged that、uh, Japanese will be starting direct flights to Kona. And we've been working with the Hawaii Tourism Authority、uh, and our travel partners to make sure that we're ready for that.、Uh, and we want to make sure that we can be successful、uh, so that others will begin、uh, to travel again back to Hawaii. And, Governor, you know, there's been lots of hand wringing over the、uh, awarding of the marketing contract、uh, by the Hawaii Tourism Authority. Uh, first to、uh, HVCB and then to the Council of、uh, Native Hawaiian Advancement. And I know they're still going through the、uh, challenge period, but w- what are your thoughts on that? Catherine, you know, we have been focused on pivoting, right, in our、uh, approach to travel and to the visitor industry.、Uh, I was very encouraged when I went to Japan. Uh, that、um, Hawaii Tourism Authority and、uh, HT Japan was very successful in spreading the message of Malama Hawaii uh, and about、uh, the notion that we want、uh, visitors who are respectful of our culture and our environment, you know, who are committed to,、um, to upholding our core values、uh, when they travel here. I'm hopeful. That you know, part of this contract requirement for North America was to do a similar thing with our partners in North America to really focus on the pivot, the focus on destination management, the focus on ensuring that we can work with the community,、uh, stakeholders, and residents, identify those、um, points of friction, and then really have HTA drive the. Changes and, and programs as necessary so that our residents don't、um, feel overwhelmed by visitors that, and that we can find some way to share、uh, our beaches and,、um, and our parks、uh, with the visitors in a way that、um, both benefit. But do you think that the, uh, uh, the process under which this marketing、uh, contract was awarded was you know, on the up and up? and Uh, I don't know if, if the council you know, has a wherewithal to just step in and, and, and run with this. Well, I, I do know that HTA has really been、uh, working on the procurement issue. As you know, they previously w a s、um, exempt from the procurement laws,、uh, and the legislature had taken that away from them. So they, they did have to totally revamp the procurement process. To comply with the procurement laws. So I know that it probably was different than what they did in the past, but that was really、uh, directed by the legislature. And, you know, I feel confident that the people at HTA, you know, looked at all the things that they needed to do and、uh, made the changes in order to comply with the law. That was、uh, Governor David Ige speaking with us this morning about a number of issues, including the HTA marketing contract and the latest on Red Hill.
Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. If you've got fresh ideas on how HPR can serve our islands, consider applying to join our Community Advisory Board. We're looking for diverse perspectives from across all islands. The feedback we receive from our advisory board helps us shape programming, events, outreach, and the future of HPR. Apply by June 30th at hawaiipublicradio.org. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the lieutenant governor's race. Political reporter Blaze Level joins us today. Will it be the springboard to the state's top job, as it has been for some candidates? Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. I'm sure the top candidates are very much hoping it will be a springboard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, uh, you know, you talked to uh, some of the front runners uh, in this race. Yes, yeah, so we spoke to Keith Amamiya, Silvio Luke, Kaika Anderson, and Sherry Monor McNamara. We just wanted to really see, you know, what exactly would they want to do if they're elected as lieutenant governor? You know, there hasn't been a lot of focus put on the office in the past. In past elections, I can't really call much, you know, attention being paid because there's few duties that the lieutenant governor actually has to do, right? They file name changes, they keep records and meeting notices. But after Lieutenant Governor Josh Green took the role, he really elevated it, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic as the state's liaison. As you recall, you'd see him with his whiteboard laying out the state's COVID plan. He'd be springing numbers earlier than everybody else and really positioning himself as, you know, this great communicator in a time when the state really needed one during the pandemic. And so these four candidates are hoping to elevate that position even further, and they've got their own ideas about how exactly they're going to do it. Well, you know, we did see uh, Governor Cayetano, when he was lieutenant governor, he -hmm. took on the A-plus program and uh, created something there, you know, something great, something lasting um, in the community. Uh, And so he stepped up to fill a need. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how these candidates uh, try and, uh, uh, you know, make a name for themselves if they get in. Exactly, and I think that's what each are gunning for. Now, uh, three of the candidates, Ama Mio, who, if you recall, ran for Honolulu mayor in 2020 but lost to Rick Blangiardi, Sylvia Luke, she's the House Finance Chairwoman and former Councilman Ikeka Anderson, they all had housing proposals, um, you know, uh, as part of their platform, and that's what they highlighted. Ama Mia has proposals to impose more taxes on vacation rentals and speed up permitting. Uh, Luke wants to work closely with agencies to figure out ways to spend millions of dollars that the legislature recently appropriated in funds that were set aside for various housing projects. And and Anderson wants to import this tiny homes program, this, you know, Kohale, like this little village program um, that he helped to implement in the state along with Green. Um, And he wants to take that concept and expand on it and make it statewide. Uh, Sherry Manor McNamara, meanwhile, she didn't talk so much about housing. She wanted to focus on the economy and bringing Hawaii out of, you, you, you know, the downturn from the pandemic and try to position the state, you, you know, in a way where it, it doesn't experience the same um, negative side effects again. As you know, she's the chamber president that represents over 2,000 businesses in the state. She's seen as business friendly, and that's the area that she wants to focus on, helping businesses and developing the workforce and coming up with some kind of economic plan, like I said, to uh, better position the state. What we haven't heard yet, though, is specifics on how any of these proposals will be implemented. I, I go back to the beginning. You know, the go, the lieutenant governor doesn't have a lot of duties or powers really spelled out for them in the law. So it's going to be really incumbent on these individuals, whoever is elected, to figure out how exactly they all uh, implement any of the proposals they're proposing. Well, you know, we saw early on uh, Shan Tsui, you know, when he was LG, um, you know, wanting to push sports tourism. Uh, and then, you know, uh, uh, Green stepped into that slot, uh, and like you said, made his way, made his name, uh, made a name for himself, and won some fans during the COVID uh, pandemic. Right, and it really boils down to what you know. What do they want to do? It's kind of a, it's not a clearly really defined role when you think about it. So it's really up to the candidate to make 
um, you know, the office, whatever they they want with it, whether that be tackling the housing crisis, uh, tackling the homelessness crisis, looking into the economy. Maybe they want to take on energy, but they do need to have a plan with specifics on how they do all this and implement things with both the governor's administration and the legislature. Yeah, we'll see um, see who wins and see what they do with the job. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Blaze Level with their reality check. Read the full story online at civilbeat.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you about a very special musical instrument that lives in our Atherton studio. And we asked what makes it unique. Our sleek black grand piano was brought all the way from Germany by Alexander Pug Atherton. Its design and construction give it a wide dynamic range with a full, rich sound. But what really makes this piano sing is all in the keys. And we do mean all. Instead of the standard 88, the uh, Bosendorfer uh, comes with four additional keys, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. It also comes with a little magic. The Renaissance uh, and the vibration of the extra strings uh, produce a whole new set of harmonies. That's made it a popular choice for chamber music concerts and recital performances. Uh, never seen one of these pianos before? Well, come on down to the Atherton and see it for yourself. We welcome guests. That's today's quiz. Uh, oh, and I must say, we do have a winner today. John from Kona, you got it right. But if you have an idea for a quiz, uh, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Occupational Safety and Health with open positions for occupational safety and health compliance officers, environmental health specialists, and advisors. Labor.hawaii.gov jobs. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, do you really know how to influence other people? Stephen, 100%. We get a masterclass in the science of persuasion from the legendary social psychologist Robert Cialdini. People like those who are like them, and they like those who like them and say so. How to get anyone to do anything. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Several pianists from around the world are on Oahu this week to compete in the inaugural Keolohi International Piano Competition. The event was created by the Aloha International Piano Festival and will feature musicians between the ages of 18 and 29, with the winner taking home a $10,000 prize and the opportunity to perform with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra next year. Here is local uh, competitor uh, Jaris Rhodes, who made it into the final 15 live round. Lisa Nakamichi is the founding artistic director of the Aloha International Piano Festival. She paid a visit to our station recently to talk to Jean Schiller, the host of Morning Concert on HPR2, about this competition. So this is something different. How does it differ from the Aloha International Piano Competition? Well, this competition, the Kealohi International Piano Competition, is a competition that is on par with the major international competitions around the world. The age limit, uh, the age 
bracket is from 18 to 29 years old. So the competition is geared for the young artists who are trying to launch their career. Mm -hmm. Now, the former Aloha International Piano Competition was essentially a springboard for young students to gain some exposure and um, derive some advice from their mentors. But the Keolohi competition is a full-fledged competition featuring some uh, very well-established, some very experienced competitors. That's correct. We We have selected 15 of the most the top pianists from around the world. They went through a rigorous preliminary video screening round and we had uh, applicants nearly 40 applicants applying for the video preliminary round and our judges had selected 15 to come to Hawaii to perform the live rounds. And um, there's some money involved. Yes. So in order to be considered as a major international piano competition, we had to come up with a very attractive prize money where the first prize we will be awarding $10,000 for the first prize winner, $5,000 for the second prize winner, and $3,000 for the third. And the three finalists will be performing a full concerto with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra next week, Wednesday on June 22nd at the Blaisdell. Well, by the way, who put up the uh, prize money for the competition? So we are very fortunate to have received support from the Kosasa Foundation as well as Mrs. Carolyn Barry Wilson. Mm, so all credit is due them. Nice to know there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yes, and I think it gives them, it gives the competitor, it will make them practice and, you know, they would want to really do their best here in Honolulu. So the music community as well as any any um, classical or any, you know, lover of classical music, they are in for a real treat. So why don't you give us a timeline beginning with uh, June 15th? Yes. So we will have two days of the preliminary round where, um, so 15th will start from, uh, we will have eight competitors performing on the 15th. The competition starts at 10 a.m. at Orvis Auditorium at UH Manoa. And then on the 16th, we will continue with round one, day two of round one, and uh, the rest of the seven competitors will be uh, performing uh, their solo pieces. So these are not private performances. Uh, People are encouraged to attend. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, These uh, 15 competitors are really the top uh, pianists, uh, young pianists uh, of the world, um, and uh, 15th and 16th, uh, the preliminary rounds are free mm-hmm. to the public. And uh, the orchestral performances with the uh, HSO? So that will take place on June 22nd, and it's $10 general ad- admission. So three finalists will perform with the Hawaii Symphony, and a panel of judges will decide the winner. That's correct. So who's on the panel? We have John Nakamatsu, who is the Van Cliburn gold medalist. Uh, he's also a regular um, for, to um, regular at the Aloha International Piano Festival. Uh, Norman Krieger, who is the piano chair at Indiana University. Alan Chow, he is the piano chair at Eastman uh, Conservatory. And then Hesan Peck, uh, is, uh, she will be joining us for the first time, and she is on the faculty at New England Conservatory. Now, as we mentioned before, uh, some of these uh, competitors are quite experienced. Some even have recording contracts, but uh, newcomers are welcome as well. It should be an awesome challenge for them. Oh, absolutely. It will be very exciting. Uh, In fact, our our youngest competitor, um, Jairus Rhodes, is a local um, contestant uh, from Hawaii, and he's the only contestant who who passed to the live round mm. here in Honolulu. So it would be very, it's, it's, I'm, I'm thrilled um, to have a competitor competing in, in this level of competition, you know, so. What do you think of his chances? Well, I think it will be a great experience for him to be per- performing with experienced uh, competitors. Uh, and I, I hope, I hope he will do well. And um, but this is going to be a regular thing. Yes, uh, the Keolohi International Piano Competition is a triennial competition. Uh, it will take place every three years. Uh, so this year is the inaugural competition, and then the next competition will take place again in 25. Wow. But this is the first, and it's going to be exciting. 
Yes, very exciting. Lisa Nakamichi of the Kealohi International Piano Competition. Now, the Aloha International Piano Competition is also an ongoing thing. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we will continue to offer uh, world-class instructions, masterclasses, uh, workshops for our local students, as well as um, pre-college and you know college students coming from uh, internationally. So Aloha International Piano Festival will take place next year. Okay. Now, that's a mentorship. This Keolihi International Piano Competition is a full-fledged competition. And that's it's, correct. It's going to be exciting. Yes, very. Lisa, we look forward to it. It begins on uh, June 15th, and it lasts until... June 22nd. June 22nd, which will be uh, the um, concerts with the Hawaii Symphony Orchestra. We look forward to it. That, well, uh, great idea, and all the best of luck with it. Thank you so much. That was Lisa Nakamichi with the Keolohi International Piano Competition talking with HPR's classical music host, Gene Schiller. The competition starts tomorrow and features pianists from several countries, including China, South Korea, Poland, and the U.S. does it for us today. Tomorrow, we take a look at our dependence on oil and what that means for our climate goals. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <music>